This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Richard John Lin, Professor Emeritus of Chinese Thought and Literature in the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Toronto. Most recently, Dr. Lin is author of Wang Shijin's Theory of Spirit Resonance, Evidence from the Shen Yunji and Tangxian San Meiji, published in the Feshrit for Jonathan Chaves in 2018. Dr. Lin, thank you for talking with me today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I'm glad to do it. A lot of your research, I'm looking over all of your publications here, dealing a lot with Chinese thought and Chinese literature. So from the perspective of Chinese literature and Chinese thought, what role does the Meiji Restoration play in East Asia? Well, my focus is primarily on a Chinese figure, Peng Zongxian, who was born in 1848 and died in 1905. He was probably the last great Chinese classical poet. He is often referred to as that in in histories of Chinese literature. And he was uh, an interesting man in many ways. And what particularly interested me in terms of the Japanese connection is the fact that he was a member of the first Japanese legation sent by the Qing court abroad. And this was in 1877 to Tokyo to negotiate the status of the Ryukyu Islands. That was the initial reason for doing so. And also the status of Korea at the time. There was a great deal of controversy at the time because the the Ryukyu kings had become vassals of both the Qing Chinese on the mainland and of the Bakufu in Japan. And with the change of government, the Japanese wanted a clarification of this, and negotiations were entered into. They eventually won out, and um, sovereignty over the islands went to Japan instead of China. Anyway, that was the the initial reason for sending the um, legation from Beijing to to Tokyo and Huang Zongshen, who elected not to go the usual Jin Shi route and uh, to enter officialdom, but also he became he became um, interested in, in modern ways of, 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 of China engaging with the world and so followed a diplomatic career. He probably was chosen as um, the third and member of the, uh, after the, the, uh, uh, the ambassador, the vice ambassador, and then he became the, the, the third or the secretary of the, largely because he was an extraordinarily good um, writer in prose and a calligrapher. Everything was handwritten, of course, in those days. And he had a very bold, clear hand that uh, probably got him the job. Anyway, he showed up in Japan, and this was the connection that I was particularly interested in. Yeah, you mentioned it. they chose him because he had a, such a good hand. It reminds me of that most of the diplomacy at this time is done in Chinese script, if, if I'm not mistaken. The, well, the ubiquitous kanji culture. This is also another interesting angle on Huang Zongshen in Japan. He was not Japanese, but he had access to the, to all aspects of Japanese society in ways that Westerners could never have done at that time. He could read everything, pretty much. He learned enough Japanese grammar to, to make his way through texts that were not written entirely in kanbun. And he conducted an enormous um, uh, amount of, of hitsudan, or brush talks. Uh, 
which were written in a combination of literary Chinese, kanbun, and kanhua in Japanese, guanhua in Chinese. This is the original and real meaning of Mandarin. So then they, when they met, he had a, a rather close circle of friends, um, Japanese bunjin, literar literati of the day, and they conducted an enormous amount of correspondence in this medium. And much of this survives, preserved at Waseda University. Thousands of pages of this, which cover the years 1877 to 1885, actually. Huang Sung Shen leaves Japan in 1882, but the keeper of these, a man named Okochi Teruna, the ex-Hancho um, of Takasaka Han uh, before the Restoration, he became the head of the, of the Meiji army, actually, and received the shogun surrender in Kyoto. But then he retired. He had been getting a, a huge income from his fief, and the new Meiji government wanted to pay him about one-tenth as much, and he said, oh, that's not worth it. So he retired and started this interesting circle of Chinese and Japanese wenren, bunjin, at the time. So you mentioned these negotiations are dating from about 1877, and Okinawa becomes a prefecture in 1879. Is this figure also involved in the earlier negotiations around Taiwan? No, but he was interested in Korea. Mm -hmm. Korea was a focal point of interest both by the Chinese and Japanese. And the big fear then was not Britain, as one might expect, but Imperial Russia. And so how to prevent Korea from falling into the hands of the Tsarist Empire? And Huang wrote a very long and, at the time, influential essay on it, advising that China and Japan should bond together and stand against not only Russian but Western imperialism in general. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't work. By 1885, relations between China and Japan had really started to deteriorate, and which led eventually. And then they deteriorated completely after the failed reform movement in, in, in China in 1898. Mm -hmm. An interesting side, of, side of, on that is that Huang himself, as a member of the progressives, was targeted, and he would have been executed. But he was in Beijing at the time it all took place, but he was hid in the house of a Japanese diplomat whom he had befriended years before in Tokyo, mm. who kept him safe until the most of the furor was over and he was safe mm. to come out. But at that time, he was told to go home. He was cashiered, stripped of his offices, just told to go home and never have anything to do with politics again. Mm. Huang himself was um, engaged in, in life in Japan. It was, uh, he, he looked back on it in, in his later years quite fondly and remembers it uh, and remembers all his associations and wrote many poems and uh, very reminiscent of his time in, in Japan. While he was there, he wrote, um, there were two editions of the, in Chinese, urban zashishu, in Japanese, Nihon Zatsujishi, uh, miscellaneous subjects from Japan. Um, they're all seven-syllable quatrains. Altogether in the two volumes, if you sort them all out, some of them are repetitive, some of them replace earlier ones in the later edition. But there are 214 of these, and to which he attached prose um, commentaries because a lot of the information would have... He's writing for a Chinese audience, 
and a lot of the terminology and place names and so forth would have been unintelligible. And so he adds on prose uh, commentaries of his own to the poems, mm -hmm. and these are published along with that. The content of the poems is quite quite broad, and covers all aspects of Chinese or of Japanese history, um, architecture, um, marriage. Um, funerals, the role of Buddhism, uh, women. His poems about Japanese women are interesting. He found it quite extraordinary that, that, that uh, quite respectable Japanese women would appear in public, perhaps with their husbands, uh, walking arm in arm, or even dancing in public. He thought it was rather a good thing, but he was quite quite shocked when he first saw it because there was nothing like this in China of his own day. Mm. And um, oh, he wrote um, about the Meiji Restoration itself, and was and and even with the nostalgia of some of these friends of his that were quite cultural conservatives about the um, the Bakufu, that that here was a dispossessed class. He talked about the mansions of all the the daimyo who came in uh, along the Sumida River and they were now deserted and peasants had become squatters and instead of the beautiful flower gardens they're now planting vegetables, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he thought that was sad. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he had a, he, what he, he was trying to develop uh, a sense for his Chinese readers that Japan is different but it's not that different. So he's always trying to pull parallels between uh, events and circumstances in Japan and what had, had happened in China in the past. They're, they're quite remarkable. Uh, his, his poems about women were, were quite uh, positive, mm -hmm. um, including um, the education of girls. And he was a great advocate of, of vernacular uh, language movement in China, which was then just sort of getting started. He was a major player in promoting baihua or vernacular as a literary language in China and is, is so regarded uh, by historians of modern Chinese literature. Anyway, they're fun to read and um, interesting and full of insight in a way that I don't think any European or American, any Westerner would have had at the time because of his, his access to uh, kanji culture. You mentioned he's commenting on women dancing in public, so I imagine this would have been the mid-1880s or so. And Well, it, these first poems were done by 1879 right. and all of them by 1890. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking of uh, the comments by Europeans in particular regarding the Rokumeikan, for example, where you'd see all of these uh, Japanese men, Japanese officials, dancing with Western diplomats, the, they would bring their wives in. Mm -hmm. And there is comments in these Western or European uh, accounts how, how disappointed they, wa they were when the Japanese women stopped wearing kimono and started wearing Western oh. dress. Well, that, that happened just at this time. Oh. I mean, they're woodblock prints. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if Huang mentions the same thing. Does he have the same consternation or does he see it a different way? No, uh, he, he points out that this is a modern development. He's all for a more open society. Um, he's certainly well aware of the hypocrisy of, of traditional Confucian mores in his own day. 
and I think he sees these developments in China as uh, in Japan as a good thing. However, when occasions call for traditional dress like kimono, he has several poems on kimono. Mm. Um, and the preservation of uh, all sorts of traditions. He has a, a set of elaborate poems on um, uh, burial customs, funerary and burial customs, uh, and on marriage and uh, the roles of Shinto and, and, and Buddhism and so forth. Mm -hmm. He notes with, with considerable interest that Buddhism in both countries, uh, yes, uh, Confucianism, Taoism uh, now. What do we do with Taoism? It's sort of like Shinto, mm -hmm. but not quite. So he's attuned to that sort of, those nuances as well. The same way with, with um, music, theater, he has poems on no, on kabuki, on the shamisen, oh, all sorts of things. Uh, he's quite critical of Japanese Buddhism. The monks marry, uh, eat meat and drink, and the priests in temples and their wives run it like a business. He's, he himself was quite a serious Buddhist. I hmm. uh, should have said that at the beginning, perhaps. So the, the range of subject matter is, is quite considerable. Uh, one thing he was particularly impressed about was the preservation of Chinese books and art objects in Japan. He was uh, the forerunner of, of scholars who came from China to search out lost Chinese works, which uh, in the next 20 years after Huang arrived through the early 20th century, many, many lost works were found, and these were all republished to the great delight, at least of the scholarly world at the time. And he was impressed with the preservation of really ancient manuscripts. Mm -hmm scrolls, paintings, and so forth. And of course, many of the people he dealt with officially were collectors. And I should add, perhaps to close this part, that he himself became the kanbun and kanshi, uh, Chinese classical verse uh, tutors to many major Japanese figures. Later on, he, um, in 1890, the time that the second edition was published, he brought out his uh, Urban Guozhi. He's the first Chinese to ever write a com comprehensive history of Japan in Chinese. Mm -hmm. And this was published also by the Tungwen Guan, the official government publishing house, largely connected with foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. And both of these became, well, bestsellers at the time among the kind of people he was trying to reach. Mm -hmm. His agenda was China needs to modernize, and the right model for it is Meiji Japan. Mm -hmm. And the Guangxu Emperor is supposed to have kept copies of these at his bedside until he was done in by the Empress Dowager in 1898. You mentioned that he wrote first history of Japan in Chinese uh, and was looking at the Meiji Restoration as, as somewhat of a model. So what was his view of the Restoration? How did he depict what was happening in Japan in the 1870s? It was very mixed at first. He was uh, quite um, uh, positive about some features of it. He especially liked the, um, the, the states establishing a, uh, a universal education system. 
which included uh, girls and women. He was he's a he's a haka, so he was not as um, hidebound, um, paternalistic, patriarchal as as many Chinese would have been at the time. Uh, haka women did not bind their feet, and haka marriages tended to be monogamous. So he was already on the right track, you know, from his own background. Um, he was present at the first um, inauguration of the, the women's college that started training uh, daughters of, of samurai families uh, as teachers, and he, th he approved of that entirely. On the other hand, he, he, he was quite dubious about, about some things. At first, he was quite critical of newspapers, the idea that you disseminate news uh, and anybody can comment on it, and he kind of ridiculed the idea. But th then, by the second edition, he was all for it. And there's a line in one of his poems saying, it's just amazing that something happens somewhere in the world in the morning, and by nightfall, thanks to the telegraph, it's known all over mm -hmm. you know, the world. And this is a terrific thing. Um, he, was a, he was rather uh, contemptuous of the new diet and the, the kind of broad base moving towards democracy but never quite getting there. He was a bit uncertain about all that. But by the time he did the second edition, at that time he was already the secretary at the Chinese Imperial Legation in Britain, in London. He had changed his mind considerably. So he, the shift occurred during those, those years. In between, he was first consul general in San Francisco, uh, repatriating a lot of uh, railway workers mm -hmm. who were trapped and were stateless. And then he became consul general in Singapore, and from there to Britain. He was going to be appointed um, ambassador to Japan by the Guangxu Emperor, but then everything collapsed. the receptivity of his publications on Japan? And these it ideas. was very popular. And it was also popular in Japan. Uh, I think even before 1880, the, the, the book was first published, the collection of poems in 1879. There were already, by the next year, editions in both Tokyo and Kyoto. It went, it, it was published in China as a, a number of other places besides the Tungwenguan. And it was also published in Hong Kong. It was immensely popular and uh, extremely well-known. Liang Qichao was greatly influenced by it. Lu Xun had a copy of the original edition in his own library. I'm curious, too, if towards, say, the 1895 Sino, or 1894-95 Sino-Japanese War, are his attitudes and views towards Japan, do, they see a, do we see a discernible shift by, towards the end of his life? He's, he, he is if anything, critical of China. He has written some very long narrative poems about the, deba the naval debacle uh, and very sympathetic to Japan, very positive. Like, it's, it's almost like China's been asking for it and, of course, now we're reaping this harvest of, of disaster because we, you know, of our policies over the past generation. Mm -hmm. yeah. But again, these were p private poems written by a retired scholar living at home. 
Mm. So he got away with it. <laughs> I've heard of, especially from the Meiji period, many of uh, Western theoretical concepts, especially regarding politics, kind of filter their way into East Asia through Japan. Uh, Japanese thinkers would kind of reach back into Chinese classics to, to pull out words like democracy, mean shishigi. Yeah, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. There's a, a German scholar, Joachim Kurz, who, who has studied this in, in great detail. It's a curious two-way street. The first attempt to translate Western ideas of political economy-related terminology were the Jesuits in the 17th century. These were pinched by the Protestant missionaries in the 19th century, almost always without acknowledgement. And these got into various kinds of tracts being published in Shanghai in the 18, well, 60s on. And these were taken to Japan, where they became very influential. So they actually went that route. And then they went back to China, either by Japanese visitors or by that uh, horde of Japanese or Chinese students who went to study in Japan during the Meiji era. Almost uh, completely a myth arose that these were invented by the Japanese, but almost all of them have this kind of curious first Jesuit and then Protestant missionary connection with Chinese collaborators, of course, of the of the uh, 16th through the 19th centuries. And you mentioned all of the Chinese students who are going to Japan uh, and then going back to China and, and I imagine participating in, in some kind of progressive reform movement. How, how big of a position was Japan in China in the 1870s, 1880s? It, not so much as early as that, but certainly from the 1890s in the early you know, before the First World War, it became increasingly so. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, from what Huang wrote in his preface to his, his, his works, in his History of Japan, and in the poems themselves, there's, there's this very strong um, subtext, you know, wake up China, this is the way to do it. And the way to do it was attractive to him because he thought that the Japanese had hit, at least in those years, hit upon a, a nice balance between tradition and modernity, preserving what is essential in the tradition and also uh, somehow adapting it without losing it in the course of modernization. Mm. While he was in Japan, the Shibunkai was established. And this is based on Siwen in Chinese, this culture of ours, as Peter Bowl translated it many years ago in one of his books. This was the, the shared common cult, high culture of literacy in East Asia. And Huang th thought that this was the glue that ought to hold East Asia together and prevent it from being overwhelmed by the West as well as uh, the means to preserve what is best in the tradition. Alas, it didn't work because from 1885 on, the Japanese went, you know, the, the old song, better be a hammer than a nail. Well, they were sure to become a hammer. Yes. And China continued to be, alas, a big fat nail, but a nail. And then, of course, in, in Japan, we have uh, Japanese thinkers and Japanese politicians who look at the Chinese Revolution, and they see it as kind of a crisis moment for them because 
it said, well, how come China didn't adopt the Meiji model? How come they went more of this Western model? What's wrong with the Meiji model? And it actually causes a little bit of introspection amongst Japanese thinkers at the time. Yeah. Well, one of Huang's close friends was Ishikawa Kosai. He was a sinologist, a painter, a poet of, in his own right, and kan he wrote Kanbun. He wrote a curious kind of collection of ghost stories in imitation of the Liao Jiajie uh, in Kanbun that was a bestseller. It's actually been translated into modern Japanese and published a few years ago. It became a modern kind of bestseller now. Uh, interesting things, you know, with ghost demons, fox spirits, and all that stuff. Anyway, he was very learned, but by the early 20th century, especially the failure of the 1898 reform movement in China, this is when Japan gave up on China. And things got progressively worse, of course. And I think the reason why was that the Japanese got involved in a real aggressive imperialistic policy towards China. The Chinese lost confidence in, in Japan in all ways and became very hostile. And I think this is why they probably rejected the Meiji model. But by the time of the First World War and the 1920s, and then of course with Japanese militarism in the mid-30s on, um, things were, you know, Japan was didn't have a good press in China at all. I think this is why they, they, they went a Western way if they went anywhere at all. talking about how Japan was able to modernize while keeping its traditions because uh, looking at it from today's perspective that's often the criticism of Japan and the praise of China is that China has been able to develop more recently while maintaining more traditions whereas Japan perhaps completely shunned Japanese traditions and is now completely westernized. You look skeptical. I do, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, first of all, up until the, the end of the Second World War with the, with the uh, educational reforms, literary Chinese was part of every educated person's background. Uh, not only could people read uh, classical Chinese prose and poetry, they could write it. Um, this changed completely with 1945 and the educational reforms, where literary Chinese, classical Chinese, kanbun, kanji culture in general, you know, has fallen on hard times, much like Latin in the West. When I was in high school, I did three years of Latin, and I thought that was the only, you know, it's the right way to go. Mm. But who does that anymore, right? Um, and even it was even stronger, of course, earlier in the 20th century. And so this, this um, turn towards um, entirely doing things the, the Western way instead of the Chinese way, well, again, it's a kind of a reaction. Uh, there are odd, odd kind of, of quirky perspectives on this. As far as Japan goes in terms of preserving culture, well, there's a big resurgence of interest in kanji culture. There's a lot of books. If you go to any big bookstore, Junkudo or something, place like that, you'll, you'll find a big shelf full of books promoting kanji culture as a kind of um, essence of Japanese culture. 
Well, I'm all for that, of course. The more stuff is written in kanji, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so it's quite complicated. Now, uh, is China really preserving culture? Well, the Communist Party is now the, the steward of the heritage. Well, that's certainly a better thing than the way things used to be. So it's come full circle from the Cultural Revolution. And pre-modern literary texts are certainly given a lot more attention than they had been earlier. I don't know. It, times have changed. Japan has a, a curious kind of balance. I, I find it a balance. It's refreshing. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.